What we do here at RUF is that we uh, try to create a safe environment for where you, wherever you are spiritually to come and to explore the truth claims of the Bible with us. And so if, if you have a, a, one of those passages in front of you on the sheet of paper, what we're doing this semester is that we're going through the book of Judges. It's an Old Testament book. And we've said every single week that the book of Judges is a series of true stories that were written to God's people to show them God's grace and to therefore call them to faith and obedience in light of God's grace. And if you've been with us this semester, you have seen this pattern developing in the book of Judges. And uh, it is this cycle that happens over and over and over. God's people rebel against God. He hands them over to a foreign enemy and they oppress them, enslave them, and make them miserable. They cry out to God and then God raises up this deliverer or a judge to save them. If you've been with us all semester, it's like this is getting redundant. The thing's happening over and over. And actually, with each rotation of the cycle, it, it gets worse and worse. It's a downward spiral. The reason I bring that up is tonight, this passage that we're going to look at, in Judges chapter 9, the, the wheels start to fall off. Because now there's a turn. The problem is no longer this foreign external enemy. The problem is now an internal cancer to the people of Israel. It's not some foreign enemy that's their problem. Now it is their own ruler, the person of Abimelech, who is Gideon's son. And so we're going to look at this dude named Abimelech tonight from Judges chapter 9. So if you have this passage, I'm going to read it out of Judges chapter 9. Uh, I, I, I edited out a middle section, but you'll, you'll see kind of how the thought flows. This is God's word to us tonight from Judges chapter 9. Abimelech, son of Jerubbaal, that's Gideon, went to his mother's brothers in Shechem, And said to them, and to all his mother's clan, Ask all the citizens of Shechem, which is better for you, to have all seventy of Jerubbaal's sons rule over you, or just one man? Remember, I am your flesh and blood. When the brothers repeated this, uh, repeated all this to the citizens of Shechem, they were inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our brother. And they gave him 70 shekels of silver from the temple of Baal Berit. And Abimelech used it to hire reckless adventurers who became his followers. He went to his father's home in Ophrah and on one stone murdered his 70 brothers, the sons of Jerubbaal. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbaal, escaped by hiding. And then all the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo gathered beside the great tree at the pillar of Shechem to crown Abimelech king. And when Jotham was told about this, he climbed up on the top of Mount Gerizim and shouted to them, Listen to me, citizens of Shechem, so that God may listen to you. And then he tells the story, and I'll explain that in a second. Verse 42. The next day, The people of Shechem went out to the fields, and this was reported to Abimelech. So he took his men, divided them into three companies, and set an ambush in the fields. When he saw the people coming out of the city, he rose to attack them. Abimelech and the companies with him rushed forward to a position at the entrance to the city gate. Then two companies rushed upon those in the fields and struck them down. All that day, Abimelech pressed his attack against the city until he had captured it and killed its people. Then he destroyed the city and scattered salt over it. On hearing this, the citizens in the tower of Shechem went into the stronghold of the temple of El-Barith. When Abimelech heard uh, that they had assembled there, he and all his men went up Mount Zalman. 
He took an axe and cut off some branches, which he lifted to his shoulders. And he ordered the men with him, quick, do what you have seen me do. So all the men cut branches and followed Abimelech. They piled them against the stronghold and set it on fire over the people inside. So all the people in the tower of Shechem, about a thousand men and women, also died. Next, Abimelech went to Thebes and besieged it and captured it. Inside the city, however, was a strong tower to which all the men and women, all the people of the city fled. They locked themselves in and climbed up to the tower roof. Abimelech went to the tower and stormed it. But as he approached the entrance to the tower to set it on fire, a woman dropped an upper millstone on his head and cracked his skull. Hurriedly, he called to his armor bearer, draw your sword and kill me so that they can't say a woman killed me, killed him. So his servant ran him through and he died. When the Israelites saw that Abimelech was dead, they went home. And thus God repaid the wickedness that Abimelech had done to his father by murdering his 70 brothers. God also made the men of Shechem pay for all their wickedness. The curse of Jotham, son of Jerubal, came on them. This is God's word. Let me pray, and then we'll look at it together, okay? Father, we would ask for your mercy and for your kindness uh, as we look at this together. We need you to be our teacher. We are... Uh, weak and desperate and have no hope of understanding this apart from your spirit's intervention. So would you do that? Would you be gracious to us in these next few moments? And that would be our prayer. And we'd ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Knock, knock. Control freak. Okay, now you say control freak who? Uh-uh. You get it? Okay. <laughs> I thought it was funny. (laughs) The reason I tell that story, the reason I tell that joke, you get the joke now? It takes a while. It takes a while. You get it. I don't know what's happening. (laughs) The reason I tell that joke is because my assumption, my assumption as we begin this night is that everyone in this room myself included, is a control freak. At one level to another, some of us struggle with this more than others, but at one level or another, my assumption just from the beginning is that we're all control freaks. Let me just throw out a few questions to diagnose you and to show you that this is the case. Uh, Do you make for yourself endless to-do lists? Cross off and just keep adding. Uh, If you're in a group project, are you the person that takes it over? Because, as you think, if you want it to be done right, then (coughs) fill in the blank. I I will do it, right? Uh, Do you find that you are a slave uh, to your schedule, to your iPhone, to your uh, calendar? Um, Do you worry a lot? Are you just eaten up with worry? Worry, by the way, is a form of control. Do you often lie to people? Lying is a form of control. Uh, are you um, uh, addicted to pornography? Porn's a form of control. Uh, if someone comes to you with a problem, a crisis, and you enter into you know, strategizing mode, problem-solving mode, is that your first instinct, just to fix them? And if they don't act on your advice, get really frustrated with them? Look, everybody in this room, at, at one degree or another, is a control freak. Now, I know some of you are saying, okay, okay, 
I can zone out for the rest of the night because I do not struggle with control. I'm the laziest person I know. I don't do anything. I have zero (laughs) self-control. If this is you, let me just ask you, how's your prayer life? Because that reflects how much you actually depend on God. The the reality is you're the king of your own life too. You're just not as stressed out about it as much as the rest of us are. Everybody in this room suffers with issues of control. We are all control freaks at one level to the other. And uh, what I have found in this passage is that this story that we just read has been unbelievably helpful and impactful for me as I've wrestled with my own issues of control over the past week or so. And, and, and I hope that it will be helpful for you as well. So what I want to do when we zero in and look at this guy, Abimelech, I want to look at this issue of control uh, under three different headings. I, I want to look at the, the reason for our control, the result of our control, and then the remedy to our control. Okay? The, uh, the reason for it, the result of it, and then the remedy to it. Okay? Three points, and we'll be done. Let's look at the first thing, which is the reason for our control. In other words, why do we do this? Why are we the type of people that like to seize control and just kind of organize and plan our life in sort of neurotic ways? Well, look at Abimelech at the beginning of the story. He volunteers for the position of king. Uh, He signs himself up. He comes to this town, which is called Shechem. That's just the name of the town. And it says in verses 2 and 3 that he basically says, hey, there are 70 brothers of mine that are in charge here. And that's um, not a good idea. I think we should just have one one leader. And why don't that leader be me? So he just kind of signs himself up for king. Now, you may think, okay, this is actually pretty wise if you think about it. Uh, You know, logically speaking, you have 70 people trying to run things. That's horribly inefficient. Uh, You need somebody to kind of be able to make executive decisions and have veto power and move the process along. 70 people, way too much. And if that's what you're thinking, that's interesting. I mean, that's, that's true. But look at what he does. Uh, If you look at verses 4 and 5, everyone agrees. He kind of wins the day, and everybody puts him in charge. He becomes king. And what is the first decision that he makes while he's in office? He hires some assassins and then has the 70 people that were in charge killed instantly. Just mass extermination, public execution. What we see here is not just him being wise and democratic and politically savvy. What we see here is a lust for control and power and a willingness to wipe out anything that stands in his way. Why? What is driving him? What's the reason for it? What's the reason behind his lust for control? Uh, There's actually two reasons in the text, and you kind of have to read between the lines, but I want to bring this out to you. The first reason that we see in this text is, is fear. The reason for his control and for our control is fear. Now, the clue for where I get that is in verse 1. If you look at it, it says that he went initially to the relatives on his mother's side. Why specify that? Why why specify that he's going to the relatives on his mother's side? Well, the 70 brothers that were in charge were from his father's side, as you see in verse 5. Now, what is this text doing? Why is it even giving us these details? What do we know about his family now? We know that his family is at odds, and his family is deeply dysfunctional. And so picture it from his vantage point. If he, if he is in the kingdom, as it were, and these 70 brothers of his from his, the other side of the family are in charge, that means that he is vulnerable, that means that he is out of control, and he's not safe, and he feels 
a certain level of fear and anxiety about it. And so instead of wanting to actually feel that fear and anxiety, what he does is he seizes control. The reason behind his lust for control and the reason behind yours and mine is ultimately fear. Fear is the thing that's underneath it all. Think about it like this. Um, Some of you feel that fear and anxiety, and to avoid having that sensation, you organize your life, and you plan it. And as long as everything is organized and planned and structured, you don't have to feel anxiety and fear and out of control. For some of you, uh, for others of you, it, it, it may be cleaning. This is actually what, uh, what's behind uh, people who suffer with OCD. For, so, for example, it's like someone who says, uh, I feel fear and anxiety, and so it's, every single night before I go to bed, I'm just going to clean these two cabinets, and they're going to be polished, and they're going to be clean, and, I, and that, that gives me a sense of I have a manageable, maintained, orderly, clean space, and there's no fear, and there's no anxiety, and there's no worry that can enter into the zone. And, of course, your, your world shrinks to that, but that's what's going on. I don't want to feel the fear. I don't want to feel the anxiety, so I will... Take control of something. For some of you, as you know, uh, the way that you avoid wanting to feel the fear and anxiety underneath is that you intensely regulate what you eat. As you know, um, the root underneath eating disorders is most often a drive for control. I, I, feel in, I feel like I'm in a chaotic world. I feel like I'm in an out-of-control body and out of control heart. And so the way that I will get some semblance of control is I I will make sure what I eat, how many calories I take in, how much I work out, I have some semblance of control over that. And all of that is being produced by this feeling of underneath, there's some level of fear. I fear what I uh, will be seen as. I fear what I'll be called. I I fear what I will see in the mirror. Here's how it works with me. I am deeply afraid of failure. I am afraid of telling a sermon, giving a sermon uh, that goes unnoticed, that uh, will get spoken and maybe will be in in a uh, a fumbly way, in a way that I will be unprepared so that uh, y'all will look at me as a fool or worse. And my my, my deepest fear is that y'all will look at me as a fraud. I'm afraid that... Uh, RUF will shrink in some ways because of my inadequacies. I'm, I'm afraid of not meeting every one of your expectations. And so how does that drive me in my life to seize control? Well, two weeks ago, uh, the, the RUF before spring break, uh, I was, uh, we were looking at the life of Gideon. And if you were here, I, I, we looked at the story where Gideon is brought to this place of weakness by God. God forced him into this position of weakness so that Gideon knew that he had to rely on God alone. The God got all the credit and all the glory for the military victory. Now, you don't know this, but my week leading up to that Wednesday night was unbelievably jam-packed and crazy. Uh, I didn't have enough time. Things came up spontaneously. People came in and kind of intruded. And, and so I went into Wednesday night feeling the most unprepared that I've ever felt for an RUF meeting. And what I did was I felt uh, deeply afraid that I was going to blow it. I felt horribly inadequate. And so what did I do? I hated that feeling. I hated that feeling of feeling weak and of feeling out of control and of feeling uh, terrified. And so what I did is for 45 minutes before Wednesday night, I got alone and I crammed. (laughs) It was like a test, cramming the sermon into my head to say, I will not fail. I will not look weak. I will not be out of control. I will not feel inadequate. And then went and preached a sermon 
about embracing failure, about being out of control, and about leaning into your own weakness. And what does that show me? What does that show you? We hate this. We hate feeling out of control. We hate feeling vulnerable. And so to avoid it, we grab control. That's the reason behind Abimelech. That's the reason behind your and my lust and seizure of control. That's the first reason we see here. Here's the second reason. First is fear. Here's the second is a lack of faith. Lack of faith. You may know this, but God's proper name in Hebrew is Yahweh. And when it's translated into English, in our English translations, it's translated as the Lord in all capital letters. Whenever you see the Lord in all capital letters, the Hebrew word behind that is the word, it's God's proper name, Yahweh. The reason I bring that up is because we just read Judges chapter 9. God's proper name is not mentioned in the book of Judges from the beginning of chapter 8, from the middle of chapter 8, I mean, all the way through the, the, the middle of chapter 10. This is a picture uh, of a society in this little window that has functionally cut God out of it. What we see in the story is a society that has removed God from the throne. And when God is removed from the throne, somebody's got to climb up on it. Whenever God is functionally dethroned in your life, you take over. I've heard somebody say it this way, that sin is man substituting himself for God. Sin is man substituting himself for God. The reason why we want control is because we are substituting ourselves for him because we don't trust him. You know, whenever I'm driving with Catherine somewhere and she's driving and I'm riding shotgun, I find myself pushing an invisible brake with my right foot. And when she's driving, I find myself, I'm grabbing the the door sometimes and and I'm pointing out, watch out the car, watch out the car. Why am I acting like a crazy maniac? It's because I don't trust her. Now that has nothing to do with her driving ability. She's a fine driver. It has everything to do with my inability to trust her. And, And what it's going on in that picture is I'm actually trying to drive the car. I'm trying to drive the car from the shotgun position. As ridiculous as that sounds, that's exactly what's going on in our lives. As ridiculous as that sounds, that's exactly what goes on with us. We gain control because we don't trust God. You know that this is true. You know that you are a faithless control freak like me when you look at your prayer life. And you honestly ask yourself, how much of my, how much of my day am I honestly dependent on God? Paul Miller, in his book, uh, The Praying Life, defines prayer as helplessness. He says prayer is helplessness. And I think the reason why we avoid it so much is because we hate feeling helpless. We hate feeling out of control. We don't want to be dependent on anyone. We don't want to ask for help, so we don't pray. And it just shows that we are substituting ourselves for God. We are acting like God. We, We are assuming the role of God in our life. We don't pray. We just make decisions, and we just act. Or you can tell that you're a faithless control freak like me by asking yourself the question, how much do I rest? Do you ever stop? Do you ever rest? Do you, do you take Sundays off and actually obey God and say, this is a day dedicated just to worship and just to rest. I'm not going to do schoolwork. And if you say, I have, but I have so much to do. There's not enough time for me to do it all. You're lying to yourself. You just don't trust that you will be able to do everything that you're called to do in the middle of the week. And so you don't stop and you don't rest and you don't trust God. And so you just are a control freak with your time. Or you can ask yourself the question, um, 
If I have a job, do I tithe? Do, do I give away my money? Am I generous with my money? Or do I hoard it? Because I don't trust God when he says, give your money away. He says, I, you're seizing control of your life and saying, this is mine. This gives me a sense of control and security and safety. It's just you're being God in that situation. The reason behind, as the story shows us, the reason behind his grabbing for control and for ours is a deep-rooted fear and a deep-rooted lack of faith. That's the reason. What's the result? This is the second thing I want to look at. What, what is the result of us seizing and grabbing power and control in our lives? What is it? Well, what happens next in the story? Remember, there was a man who escaped the slaughter of all the 70 brothers, and his name is Jotham. Uh, and after this bloodbath, we, if you see in verse 7, he climbs up on a mountain and he shouts down this parable to everyone. And I didn't include it in your story because it's, it's in your handout because it's really long. And the point's basically kind of simple. His basic point is this. Because Abimelech is driven by power and control, he's going to be a terrible king and he's actually going to destroy the town of Shechem. And Shechem is going to end up destroying him. Basically, he's saying, this is not going to end pretty. And then he runs away. And so then what happens? Well, things go well for a while. Abimelech is ruling over the people. And I didn't include this in your handout either, but in verse 22, it says that he rules for three years. He's in charge. He's in control. And everything is going well for a while. But then the people start to create this animosity. They start to create this revolt and this uprising. And now the people are a threat to his control and to his sovereignty. Think about it from your life. When you have a plan and a set way that this is the way that things should go, this is, the, this is my agenda for this day or for my life, and that gets derailed, how do you feel? Angry, right? Abimelech feels angry as well. And what he does in his anger is he goes on a bloodthirsty rampage. As we read in verses 42 through 57, basically what he does is he storms the town, kills everybody, and whoever survives and runs, they, they hide in a, in a temple, basically a church. And he, and he puts all this wood on the outside, locks them on the inside, lights it on fire, and kills everyone, 1,000 people inside. And that wasn't enough to satisfy his thirst for vengeance. So he goes over to the next town and does the same exact thing. He's on this bloodthirsty rampage. And so the question is, okay, what is the result of him, of him saying, I'm in charge, I'm going to grab control. The result is a mess. Carnage. Damaged lives. A total mess. When you try to control your life, when you try to play God, you get ulcers, you lose sleep, you stay up at night, you can't fall asleep. You get stressed out of your mind. You're always on edge. You're irritable with people. You're, you're quickly made angry. You always experience that background noise of anxiety. You know what I'm talking about? It's just always there in the background. This is the result of you saying, I'm going to be in control of my life. Our daughter, Zoe Kate, who's an 18-month-old <laughs> child, Every single morning, we feed her a little thing of yogurt, you know, a little packet of uh, yogurt. And we have a little spoon for her. And usually after the first bite or so of us feeding our 18-month-old daughter, 
she says I, she doesn't want to be fed, and so she she grabs the spoon and, and wants to feed herself. But she, you know she doesn't know how to operate a spoon and a thing of yogurt. And so what she does is she sticks it in, and she doesn't understand that even though I get yogurt on the scoop side of the spoon, when I flip it upside down to try to put it in my mouth, it it goes everywhere. So she's making this enormous mess. Yo- barely any of it's actually going into her mouth. Most of it's on her face and on her shirt and on, on the ground and on her little table thing. It's, it's just a total mess. And that is a picture of what it looks like for us to say, no, God, I got this. I can feed myself. I don't need you. I'm in control. And we make this mess of our lives. That's the picture. But what else happens in the story? If you noticed, uh, Abimelech wanted safety and he wanted control. But the problem is, is that he lives in the same world that you do. In the same world that I do, which is a world that is chaotic and a world that is uncontrollable. Did you notice how he dies? He locks these people in this tower, and this woman from the tower drops a stone on his head, and it happens to hit his head. But who, who saw that coming? Where some woman, I, I don't know how she, did she bring the stone up there with her? How big is this stone? She perfectly times it. This is totally unpredictable, totally haphazard. No one would have saw this coming, and that's how he dies. Actually, he still tries to seize control of his life. He says, I don't want to die this way. So you've got to kill me a different way. Even as he's dying, he's trying to seize control. But the point is this. He couldn't plan for all the variables. He wasn't God. He couldn't account for all the variables in a chaotic world. And the reality is, is that you can't either. You can't guarantee that you're going to... You can't guarantee and ensure that you're going to get married. You can't control that. You can't guarantee and control that all the loved ones that you know aren't going to die in your lifetime. You can't, you don't know all the factors. You can't control all the different situations. You can't guarantee it. You don't even know what's going to happen by the end of this meeting tonight. You can't control the future. My point is this control is an illusion. It's an illusion. And the more that we insist on living in it, the bigger of a mess we make of our own lives and the bigger of a mess we make of everybody else's lives. Now, some of you are going, yes, I am a control freak. I don't trust God. I'm deeply afraid. What do I do? How do I fix this? Do you sense the irony? <laughs> I, was in, I was in counseling uh, a week and a half ago, and I was telling my counselor th- basically this. I'm a control freak. I'm deeply afraid. I have, I have a, you know, I'm, I'm lacking in faith. What do I do? How do I fix this? And he laughed at me. <laughs> he laughed and he said, Matt, you're just trying to control how controlling you are. He said, you're trying to change a pattern about yourself using the same pattern. It's futile. It's futility. So what is the remedy then? What is the remedy? That's the last thing I want to look at and the last thing I want to explore with you is what is the remedy to our fear, to our lack of faith, to our control freakness that everyone in this room has. Well, look at verse 56 and 57. I'll be brief on this. Abimelech receives what is called the curse of God. If you say there in verse 57, it refers to him receiving a curse. He is being crushed. And this is all this divine orchestrated plan for him to receive and to get what a faithless, godless control freak deserves. He wanted a life apart from God, and God said, okay, you can have it. And he gave him a life apart from God. He was under the crush, uh, under the curse, crushed, and was cast out from God's presence. 
Centuries later, the, the curse of God falls again. But this time it falls again on the person of Jesus Christ. It says in Galatians chapter 3 that Jesus became a curse for us. Now the question is, okay, when? When did Jesus undergo this, this curse? It's at the cross. At the cross, Jesus is undergoing the same exact treatment as Abimelech. In Isaiah 53, it says that it was God's will to crush him. At the cross, Jesus is receiving the the crushing curse of God, where he's being cast out from God's presence altogether. And the question is, the problem is, the tension is, is that Jesus was not a godless, faithless control freak. So why is he getting that person's punishment? Well, he lives this life. Jesus comes into the world and he lives this life. And, he, and the way that he conducts his life is that he is the most faithful, dependent on God person there ever was. He says things like, I, I, I will never say anything that my father doesn't tell me to say. I, and I won't do anything that my father doesn't tell me to do. At every point, he's dependent on God. You know, at one point later in his life when he gets arrested and he's uh, bound and, and chained by these Roman guards, can you imagine how vulnerable he must have felt, how out of control he felt to be basically at the mercy of Roman soldiers who could do to him whatever they wanted to do to him? And at any point, he could have gained control of the situation and gotten out of it. He even says in, in Matthew 26 at one point, I could call down a legion of angels and wipe all of y'all out and be free. But he doesn't. He gives up control. Why? After he gets arrested, he goes to uh, Pontius Pilate, who is the, basically the governor at the time. And Pilate asks him, look, you've got all these charges against you. What do you got to say to yourself? How are you going to defend yourself from all of these charges? You, you're basically about to receive capital punishment. What do you got to say to get out of this? And you know what Jesus says? Nothing. Nothing. He could have come up with a brilliant defense, a, a brilliant strategy. He could have gained control to get out of the situation but he doesn't, gain control. he doesn't grab control. He gives it up. Why? And then when he's, after he's beaten and after he's stripped naked and he has nails pierced in him and he's hanging up on a cross suffocating, people walk by and they're making fun of him. And they say, look, apparently you could save other people. Why can't you save yourself? Why don't you just save yourself? If you could, gab- if you could grab control of the situation and save yourself, do it. And he doesn't. At every step... He gives up control. He doesn't grab it. Why? And why then, if he's the most faithful, dependent on God person there ever was, is he undergoing the curse and the crushing wrath of God at the cross? Here's why. It's because he is receiving at the cross what every godless, faithless, control freak deserves, which is a life apart from God. At the cross, Jesus is being cast out of God's presence. This is why Jesus is saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you leaving me? Why are you crushing me? Why am I undergoing the curse? It's because God is saying to him, you get what everybody deserves. People who run from me, people who don't want anything to do with me, people who want to live a life apart from me, that's the punishment you get. And what we see is that he is living the life that we should have lived and he, di- he dies the death that we should have died. He's acting as our substitute. As our substitute. Sin is, is us substituting us for God. But salvation is God substituting him for us. Salvation is God substituting himself for us. 
And when you begin to see that, when you begin to see the beauty and the grace and the wonder of the gospel demonstrated at the cross, the more that you see that and the more that you live in light of that, the more that you can actually begin to trust him and learn to trust him. Because you see that he is good, because you see that he's for you, because you see that he is gracious. If you actually believe this and took this into your heart, the deep places of your heart where you feel fear, where you feel a lack of faith, and you let this be your identity, do you know what this would do to you? This would actually free you to give up control of your life and tell other people things like this. Uh, I count calories and I need help. You could give up control and actually ask for help. You give up control by showing other people how weak and how needy you are and by inviting help. You could give up control in your life when you feel like, I'm in a season of life that just feels impossible. I've got way too much to do, way too many deadlines, way too many projects, way too many papers, and it feels like I'm called to do the impossible, and I can't stop, and I can't rest. And at that point, you can actually let go of your control and trust God and stop, and you're free to rest. You can, you can let go of your control and actually give away your money and not hoard it. You can let go of your control and trying to manage and manipulate everybody's perception of you by only showing the good parts about you and hiding to make sure nobody sees the bad parts about you and just trying to control people's perceptions. You can let go of your rights to thinking that you can manage the universe. And that is freeing. It is freeing. The invitation of the gospel is this, is that the cross looks at people like you and me, people who want nothing to do with God sometimes. People who run from him, people who push him out of our lives. And it looks at people like you and me, people who are control freaks. And the gospel speaks a sweet word of grace and of forgiveness. This is the type of people that Jesus died for. People that don't trust him, people that push him out of his life, people that want nothing to do with him a lot of their life. It's people like that, people like me, people like you. This is what the gospel comes to, and it says, look, there is grace waiting for you if you will put down your control and come in faith to the person of Jesus. And it's that grace that is waiting for you there. It's that same grace that frees you, that frees you from having to manage the universe, frees you from being an insane workaholic, frees you from yourself. And that's really good news. Sin is this. It is you substituting yourself for God. But the gospel of grace, salvation, is God substituting himself for you. Will you repent of your sin? And will you come and be embraced by a Savior who loves sinners, loves them, dies for them, lives for them? That's the invitation. Will you come to him? Let's do that now. Let me pray. Father, we do not trust you so often. Uh, We are so insecure with fear and anxiety, and we feel so unsafe, so vulnerable, so out of control, and we don't trust that you have our best interest in mind. And so we push you out, and we grab control ourselves. And when we do that, Father, we we forfeit our access to joy and to gratitude and to peace and to patience and to freedom. I pray, Father, for my sake and for the sake of these folks here tonight, Father, will you give us the grace to come to you in faith, broken, faithless, godless control freaks that we are, and to receive the sweet embrace of our Lord Jesus, who loves real sinners like us. Father, I pray that that would free us, 
that would encourage us, that would motivate us by your grace to trust you, to live for you, and to be obedient to you. But will, will you do that work in us? Will you, will you release our tight, white-knuckled grip on our life and in our control? Will you soften our hearts, draw us to yourself, and allow us to taste your grace once again? We pray this in Jesus' name.